genuine question now. Go ahead. When was the last time you experienced decent, not even like exceptional, just decent customer service? Oh, long time ago. I mean, there's no secret formula for it. Yet, what we do know is that most companies seem to be pretty bad at it. But not you, my friend, not you, listener. Oh, no, you can create an amazing customer service experience when you use the brand new service hub from HubSpot. Yep, this all new service hub from HubSpot brings customer service and support together in one simple but powerful platform so you can deliver the best experience possible. And of course, it's powered by AI, not Al, AI, meaning your team can automate those tedious tickets from people who've clearly not read your frequently asked questions. Pain in the backside, aren't they? Oh, and by the way, organizations using HubSpot Service Hub are resolving tickets 13 times faster, helping them to close 42% more tickets per day. That means increasing retention by more than 80%. Thank you, people at HubSpot who, who did the maths on that one, because I wouldn't be able to. I love a bit of data. Did you also know, Al, that it consolidates your entire internal knowledge base into one place? So no matter who is working on support, they'll have the answers at their fingertips. I did know that because I wrote that for you. Well, there you have it. Stand out from the crowd and migrate to HubSpot Service Hub today. Visit HubSpot.com slash service and learn how this all new solution can help you deliver for your customers. It was really tough. It was uh, probably to date one of the worst experiences, quite frankly and honestly and openly, that I think uh, this agency and anyone in this industry will have to go through. Um, we had to lay off 50% of our workforce and that really, really, really stung. Um, it was very hard. Hello and welcome to the Truth, Lies and Workplace Culture podcast brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. My name is Leanne. I'm a business psychologist. My name is Al. I'm a business owner. We are here to help you simplify the science of people and create amazing workplace cultures. What are we talking about this week, Al? So this week we are talking about women in leadership. It's a case study featuring MKG, which is a fairly sizable agency based out of New York and Los Angeles, fully female-led. Really interesting people. We're going to meet those guys in a second. However, you might remember back from our news roundup last week where there was a survey by Barron's, I think it was, Leah. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. Um, and they released the top CEOs of 2023. Of the 25 leaders, 16% were women, which at, on first glance sounds a bit like, oh, that's not very good. But actually, when we think about it, if only 6% of CEOs are actually female, then that's a pretty good result, isn't it? Because we're saying approximately one in 20 CEOs are women and one in six are the best CEOs in the world. So to a certain extent, they're kind of smashing, aren't they, Leah? They are. They really, really are. And I, I mean, I have to admit, I do have a slight beef with the term women in leadership or female leaders, because why do we have to be gendered? Like you don't hear like male leaders, men in leadership. I guess it's the same when in like other industries when you hear people say like, oh, female comedian. It's like they're just a comedian. Um, so yeah, I have a bit of a beef with it. I don't see the need to to talk about women in leadership in that way. At the same time, I think it's useful to continue the conversation, point out the inequity for the fact we even still have to talk about women in leadership as a thing. Um, and I guess celebrate women in a really positive way and in a way that will continue to drive change. So yes, for today, I'm embracing women in leadership, female leaders. 
And I am very excited to explore this case study uh, with the incredible women from MKG. So before we meet them, it's our favourite time of the week. It's the News Roundup. Cue the jingle. If you've never heard this before, then the News Roundup is basically where Leanne just tells us two or three stories that have caught our eye this week, including usually a word of the week. I do have a word of the week. Word of the week alert. Grand Eternity. Grand Eternity. Tell you sure where the emphasis goes. Grand Eternity, Grand Eternity. Okay. You're losing the will to live off. These word of the weeks, they're just... I swear to God, I was going to say they're made up, but of course they're made up because all words are. are made up. But words <laughs> are just arbitrarily are rearranging letters or or shapes into a certain word. But they just they just seem to get more and more weird. Can I have a guess on what it is? Please do. Um, is it when it's not maternity for mothers or paternity for fathers? It's grandternity for grandmasters of chess. No, for grandparents. It absolutely is, yeah. So this was reported in the Wall Street Journal this week. Grandternity special pay time off for new grandparents, hoping that um, to keep older workers engaged, stop them from retiring, stop them from moving to other jobs, as we've talked about before. We are working uh, much longer now, so these things are, are having to become a thing. So apparently this was first championed by Rasheen McKenzie, who is the chief people officer at Saga, an organisation that Al cannot wait to be to be old enough for. It might sound a bit strange, but Saga got some great European car insurance. There's only two companies in the UK that do great and cheap European car insurance. You can stay all year round. And that is a company called Stuart Collins um, and Saga. So I'm four years away from being 50 and therefore joining Saga and enjoying paying a little, little bit less for my car insurance. Feels like there should be an advert for Saga. It does, but you know what? This is also, I haven't thought about it before, but it's also a really good example of external consumer brand aligning with internal employer brand. It is valuing the older person as a consumer, as an employee. Um, so yeah, Saga have rolled out five days of paid grandternity. Take your teeth, I don't know. Grandternity leave. Well, if you're a grandparent, you probably don't have teeth, so... <laughs> Well, maybe not maybe in these times, getting younger. Anyway, Grand Turnity Leave, 2,500 employees have, have been offered it and 32 have so far taken it up. Um, so yeah, it, it may well become a thing to engage our older workers and other companies that are starting to roll it out. Also, uh, they include tech company Cisco, consulting firm Mercer and hiring platform HireVue. So there you go, Grand Turnity. Interesting. So what else we got, Leah? I have a little something that caught my eye this week that I thought might make for an interesting discussion. Um, you haven't seen A Bug's Life, have you? You've seen about four films, and three of those are born identity ones. Which <laughs> is one film you've watched three times. Well, I have watched them all three times, but yes, that's not the point. <laughs> anyway, what film What film do you want to talk about today that I've not seen? So A Bug's Life, you know the, you know the scene with the flag, because I've talked about this before. Like a fly with, with his mate, one of the flies is like flying towards the light. And he's like, don't go, don't do it. And he's like, I can't help it. It's so beautiful. Well, that's basically how I feel about Elon Musk. Like I don't, I don't want to look. I don't want to engage in the shite that he spouts. But I just can't help it. I just can't help it. He's, he's a very unique, interesting person. He... I don't know whether he just doesn't care what people think or whether he's 
clever enough to know and he cares very much people think and then just said stuff just to get a little bit of engagement maybe What's maybe see what you think so this week elon contributed to the comments under a uh, an islamophobic non-profits video not so cool uh, where commentators insinuated that single white women uh, were turning France into a majority Muslim country. Mr. Musk claimed the childless have little stake in the future, uh, at which point another commented, another user commented, that democracy is probably unworkable long term without limiting suffrage to parents, which basically means that only people who have children should have the right to vote. To which Elon Musk responded, Yup. He's such he just he just he just runs into conversations, drops a hand grenade, runs away, doesn't he? He really is an idiot. It's uh, do you know what? I can see his point. That we are childless, very happily childless and child free. Um, I don't know, one of one of those terms is is like good and one's bad. I can't remember if he's supposed to say child free or childless, I can't remember. Um but um but we to be fair, you know, in 50 years time our linear just stopped so i can see where he's going with it i still think it's stupid but i can see where he's going with it stupid sound like stupid. um what's his name jeremy clarks yeah stupid stupid stupid, stupid idea yeah you can, and this is why i think it'll be an interesting discussion point on linkedin you can you can see the the logic in that that if you, if you don't have a legacy to leave then you know where's your place in defining the future but similarly, you know, the decisions that are made in politics today will still very much influence our present and our immediate future. Um, and also as well, just because you have a child, I don't think that makes you qualified to decide what the best future for the world is. You know, there's plenty of parents out there that are doing a pretty shitty job as it goes. So actually, do we then bring in a complicated points-based system as to how good a parent you are to then justify getting the vote? I don't know. It seems an unnecessary argument to me. My solution is that if... At the point you die, you don't have children, you're not allowed to vote from that point forward. Oh, see, now I think that's fair. So that's if you're fair. dead and you don't have children, you can't vote. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. But yeah, I th- I, do you know what? I think the problem is because Elon has a very, very large and public platform and a lot of people listen to these very conservative right-wing views that he has. And, I, I, and that's fine, you know, freedom of speech, but... There's also lots of fake news in there. He talks about, you know, the decreasing population being one of the biggest threats to humanity. What he's talking about is a decreasing white population in the US. Population as, as a whole globally is going up and is expected to continue to grow for the next 70, 80 years, um, which I think then puts it down to a case of it just being being racist, misogynistic, homophobic. Um, and all in all, just, I think, fueling these very divisive opinions that can have a very scary and have had a very scary impact on our society, particularly you know minority groups such as women, such as people from the queer community. How many rights have we already seen world back in the last few years? Which is you know the legacy of, of Donald Trump being president for for that time. So um so yeah, this is worrying to me that this type of narrative is even becoming a thing. You know, hands made tail starting to feel a bit more like possible future rather than dystopian fiction uh, but maybe i'm overreacting maybe i'm being overly sensitive so should we put it on linkedin al do you think yeah stick it on linkedin see what people say so if you don't follow us on linkedin just type truth lies and work onto linkedin and you'll find us we're, we're everywhere on there <laughs> so shall we go to our guests yeah. 
Okay, so quick story uh, about MKG. Um, I was we we were doing Leanne and I were doing a, an episode um, around about I think it was women led companies. This is probably going back to about January this year. This is currently being recorded in July, um, and so. I wanted to try and find some people who'd be great guests for this. And I found this company and it was in New York and LA called MKG, um, fully women, women led. Um, and also the more you dig into the cooler, like the company looks and so I was like, brilliant. So I tried emailing nothing. I tried f- uh, connecting to the, the, the people on LinkedIn, totally ignored blanks. Um, I tried to find them on Twitter, couldn't find them. So do you know what I did? I did what I did, what the old school used to do. And I picked my phone up and I called them and I left a message at their office. Bit weird. I love it. It also, it, I mean, it is a beautiful Gen X struck boomer move, Al, and one that I applaud you for. But it also reminds me, we've seen those videos on, I'd say TikTok, but you're not TikTok, like YouTube TikTok, shorts. Sorry. The TikTok, you know, the YouTube shorts where it's yeah, like yeah. someone will do like a skit on how a different generation answer the phone. Like the boomer's like, hello. Gen X is like, hi. Um, Lena's like, Who, who's calling me? Why would anyone call me? Um, and then Gen Z are like, what, what, why, what, what is that? What, why is it ringing? What's happening? How times change? Anyway, I feel like we've digressed a little bit. So you Going old back. schooled MKG and wow. did they come back to you? Yes, we did. They put us onto a publicist, I think, um, who arranged the interview, got to meet the, 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 the ladies. Oh my God, they are so cool. I've got such a business crush on them. They are just the coolest people in the world. Let me tell you a little bit about MKG. Right. So MKG mainly do live events. So they do virtual events, live events. Um, anything with social impact, anything which is around what they call experiential marketing. So it's an experience of the marketing. If you've ever been to like a festival um, and you've walked into like something that's been made out to be like, I don't know, a, a dystopian future in a room or something, that's the sort of thing they do. They've got 54 people. What's interesting is if you look at their about us, you will see that every single person who has a title with the word director in it presents as a woman, which I thought was pretty cool. Very, and it's cool. very mixed, a uh, very mixed bag of people there, uh, but they have their values. So this is what I quite liked. They're, number one, bring your funky self. Number two, always keep learning. One of ours, Leanne. Um, number three, have open, honest, and brave conversations. Number four, be a force for good. And number five, embrace our differences and cel- celebrate diversity, which is definitely what they do with clients such as Motorola, uh, Meta. Uh, who else have they got? They've got Target, HBO Max. They've got huge companies who are definitely on board. Um, they're just a really, really cool company who are growing massively and probably going to be the titans of the future. A really interesting case study because it's not all, as you'll see, plain sailing. This isn't a story of success from from day one or indeed overnight success. So a really interesting example, I think, of of how to navigate these challenging times. So let's go and meet our first guest Lauren Austin, who is the Chief Creative Officer at MKG. I joined MKG in 2007, uh, like literally off Craigslist ad. Um, I was not happy in my job and was at that point in life where you're just like, I'll take anything and joined um, this little company that I had never heard of that really had no place in the market yet. It was tiny. I grew a team there. Um, and then eventually hired our first really creative team uh, and grew that and uh, eventually wound up where I am, which is overseeing all of the creative team and all of the production team and working in partnership with Christine, who really uh, runs the business. And our second guest is Christine Capone, the president of MKG. I joined about eight years ago. 
and came here with no agency experience. So I think when I say that, it's very shocking to people and shocking to myself at this point. But I really worked in brand partnerships for the majority of my career. I worked at the USTA for the US Open Tennis Championships and really managed um, new business, client relationships, partnership marketing. I worked at a retail company and oversaw all of our sponsorship negotiations, executions, and licensing. And I got a phone call one day, and um, she was the former managing director here. And she had said, hey, your resume came across my desk, and I am looking for someone that can add to this business and not just kind of fit into the business. So yes, two incredible guests, two incredible women, and two of the most influential leaders in the creative industry today. I'm looking forward to this one. We'll start at the be- not at the very beginning because we're going to hear a little bit later on um, about how Christine and Lauren sort of got into into MKG. But Christine took over as a president around about December 2020. I don't know if you remember, but there were some significant events that were going on around about 2020, 2021. Obviously, the pandemic was in full swing. Now, can you imagine being an events a marketing agency that just does live events in a time when we're locked down for two years. Mm. So I wanted to ask Christine, what was it like running this marketing agency and taking over what probably is one of the most difficult points in history? It was really tough. It was uh, probably to date one of the worst experiences, quite frankly and honestly and openly, that I think uh, this agency and anyone in this industry, we'll have to go through. Um, we had to lay off 50% of our workforce. And that really, really, really stung. Um, it was very hard. What we sort of haven't talked about yet is MKG's a really special place. And the people here are really special. And having to do that really hit in a, in a big way. Um, but it was something that we needed to do to sustain the business and honestly to get to where we are now. And we knew that. Um, clients stopped spending money and we had to say, okay, in order for us to keep a place that people are going to be able to come back to when we know we can get to the other side of this, we have to make some really difficult business choices. I would say that the people that were a part of that from management down were um, incredibly empathetic to the situation, supportive of all the decisions being made and did everything they could to help anyone that did not make it to the other side of this with us um, land on their feet. And the good news is a lot of those people are back. It did allow us the opportunity to bring on new amazing talent that we probably never would have met if something like that didn't happen. And as Lauren discovered, it was also a great time to reset the company culture. But also there were some really positive things that came out of it for us, for the business as a whole. It forced us to not only rebuild, but really like do some soul searching and examine our culture and our core values and really with a shrunk shrunken team and a core team we really did a lot of like hard conversations with the people that did stay about what they loved about this place and what 
we had an opportunity to change. And so a lot of the work that we did, maybe because we weren't busy with client work, (laughs) was internal work. Um, And, you know, thinking about how we were positioning ourselves, how we were marketing ourselves, what we wanted to do, the vision and the direction of the company, um, and a lot with our culture. You know, I think often the reason that leaders are reluctant to to make a change to their, their team or their culture is because they know that performance will more than likely suffer. I mean, there's a really simple and often cited model um, for team performance by Bruce Tuckman, who talks about forming, storming, norming, performing. It's a, it's a catchy name. I think that's what it's called. Um, but basically, it, it does what it says on the tin. So when a, a team is formed, there is a sense of excitement, perhaps some anxiety, um, you know, to get started. In. And typically, this team doesn't have a clear mission. That's the forming stage when the team gets together. As a team gets to know each other, um, you know, their ways of working, um, then they start to potentially push against those established boundaries and true characters will start to service. I'm sure we've all been there. We've been in a company for you know, a few weeks. That's the that's called the storming phase. Then we get the norming phase. People start to figure out figure out how you know to work together, resolve differences, appreciate each other's strengths, um, and then start to really you know respect each other and their leaders as well. And then after that comes performing. So that's when everyone's in flow, everyone's performing, everyone's cool, everyone's happy, everyone's reaching their potential. And no leader is going to want to rock the boat in the norming or the performing stage because it's just going to make things even harder even if it does mean that rocking that boat might be better for the financial viability or sustainability of the business so i understand it and i think so when you're when you're facing an external change like the pandemic like the financial crisis like an acquisition or a takeover it kind of gives you that because everything's changed anyway and everything's disrupted it kind of gives you that opportunity to rethink things rethink your values reevaluate what your mission is um, and I think really embracing the opportunity that comes with teams being in that forming and storming stage. And I think you know, in terms of, of redundancy, in the case of MKG as well, it really helps those people that remain to overcome that survivor's guilt. Often people feel because you're basically saying, you know, what's what's done is done. We are now a different company with a different mission and a different future. And I think that can be really empowering and, and engaging. For, for any team members that are left behind, that's a really good summary. And I, I, I have I've heard you talk about these four before, and this is the first time I've really kind of like been able to put it into like, okay, this is that's what the context is. I get it. Um, so that's really really cool. Before we dive into the rest of it, I want to learn a bit more about the culture at MKG. Around the same time that Christine became president, um, Lauren took a took the lead in the culture, and so I was like, what was it at the time that you wanted? What was your vision for the culture? for MKG? Culture had always been a really important piece of MKG previously. And I had been there and I knew the magic of that culture. But I also knew the weaknesses or like the opportunities to improve that culture. So I wanted to really work to take what we loved and what worked well, but also grow in new directions, both with staff input and with leadership sort of intuition. We worked a lot with our team through serving, through conversation to really discover what they cared about, um, what aspects of our culture were working, what aspects of our culture were not. Um, And we 
always try to take staff feedback, but we don't follow staff feedback blindly. We take staff feedback and then we apply what we know both about building a healthy business, longevity, um, maturity. We, we add things to it to make final decisions, but we always try to put staff input and staff feedback at the center of decisions that we make, especially around culture. So the team are clearly really keen on social purpose, but how do we balance that with the commercial side of our business? Can we be both? Can we be purpose-led and commercially viable? In the context of where the world was in 2020, a lot of the conversations that we were having centered around purpose and social purpose. And a lot of our team really felt passionately that they wanted the company to go in a direction where we were doing positive, making positive impact in the world. And I think as leaders, we had to reconcile, yes, absolutely, that sounds great. That sounds great to both of us too. But the reality of our business is we do brand action and we do experiential market for some marketing for some of the biggest brands in the world. And we want to push our creative team and our strategists to create work or <clears throat> pitch work that is, you know, creates positive change in the world and is socially good. But we also do work that is just great design work. So I think our, a lot of our job was trying to work with the team to understand, you know, how do we pay your salaries? How do we, you know, keep the company going without moving in a direction of like basically nonprofit, which I think at one point in 2020, our team would have gone all in on that. What is really clear about these women is that they are balancing perfectly leadership, culture, team, but also profitability, commerciality. That's what's so impressive. I think there's so many companies out there who have, who have done their like, you know, oh, we're doing a culture piece and we're going to do this. And it's just, what, what do they talk about? Not pillow talk. What's the word when you just pay lip, lip service? That's the one. So it's just lip service. Where, and then the kind of the other end where they're just like, oh yeah, we just let everyone do what they want and they can come in for an hour a week if they want. You know, it's like, well, where's the profitability? That's fine for a company. It was very, very high profitability. But for most of us, we're like, we need people to do the work. So thought that was really, really interesting. I asked Christine about nonprofit, and of course she's going to say, no, we couldn't be nonprofit. But she seemed to think that you can get your sort of purpose from actually helping brands to be better. And if there's place for us to come in and try to make a brand better, we should action that and we should try to do so. And that is sort of the positive in the work that we're doing here. Um, I think it was a, you know, a time where people really started to question who they're aligned with and brand values. And that was really tough because we all question that often, but we also need to, one, keep people employed to put great work out there. And three, that's sort of our, what we need to do as marketers is make a difference. So backing away from those brands and backing away from those moments, we're, we're not helping anything. So the team at MKG skews towards millennials and Gen Z, which is actually really common for a creative agency. So we asked Lauren and Christine, what are the challenges with having a younger team? What are the differences? We do see differences between our millennial staff and our Gen Z staff because our millennial staff had the beginning of their career be somewhat, you know, what's normal, but normal 
a shared experience for the three of us. Um, millennials had that experience. Our younger team, uh, this is their experience. They don't know anything other than this. And so I think there is going to be, especially going forward, a, a bigger generational divide as or depending on what happens with the future of work, the future of company culture, uh, the future of work from home, like all of these things are still so up in the air right now, um, not just for us, I would say globally. Yeah. And I think it will determine a major generational divide. Uh, but yeah, I think purpose is something that you see in all the studies about Gen Z. It's not just purpose in work, it's purpose across the board. Um, and social engagement is such a big part of their generation. And they're so engaged politically and engaged socially. And they've just grown up in a, such a different way than uh, we have. I think if we didn't work here, we would probably have limited exposure <laughs> um, to Gen Z. And it's, uh, it's great. And especially in what we do, it's, it's invaluable to us, you know, I, I lead the creative team, but I'm always like, I'm the old person in the room. You guys, you guys tell me like, what, what do you think we should do here? Well, you, this is you, we're talking to you. You are the audience. So let's talk about it. I think what's really cool about Gen Z is they're actually championing things that are going to make work better for all of us that we can all benefit from. I mean, having purpose is a definition. It is a, it is a psychology phenomenon. Um, it means that we're doing meaningful work that typically is aligned with our values and gives us a feeling of fulfillment, a feeling that our life is, is, you know, has purpose. That's exactly what the definition is. And when we experience purpose most powerfully, it's when it comes from various different aspects of our life. So some of our purpose is going to come from work. Some is going to come from our community. Some is going to come from our relationships. It rarely will come from one source if we are truly, truly fulfilled. And what's really interesting from a research perspective is that we know purpose is really good for our, our physical and mental health. So typically people who experience purpose have less instances of cardiovascular disease um, and lower mortality. Research has also found that leaders that demonstrate clear purpose have happier, more productive employees. And from a commercial perspective, purpose-driven companies typically benefit from faster growth, more product launches quicker speed to market, more successful change. It, it sounds really cheesy, but purpose is really good for the heart, the soul and for business. Yeah. And it's quite interesting when you think about the generational, the way that the generations work, like Gen X were kind of almost like innovation with money, with finance. You think about like the eighties of the, you know, the, the Gordon geckos and all that kind of stuff. And then you hit the millennials where they're sort of like, they were innovative with digital um, and so you've got the Mark Zuckerbergs in the, who built social networks, et cetera, et cetera. So we get now to the Gen Zs, and they've got two generations, probably three generations ahead of them, where people haven't really talked much about purpose. They've just talked about either making money or making cool things. There's no real, like, there's no sort of heroes for people about purpose. So I can see why they're doing this. I can see why it's important to Gen Z, even though I'm, what, 30 years older than the, the average Gen Zer. I can, sorry, maybe 20 years older. Um, I can definitely see that. And I think it's really, really cool. One of the other things which was really interesting was that MKG have this pay transparency. Now, they're big on equity. And so part of that is to ensure that basically they're very transparent on pay. They're very transparent about all the finances. So I had to ask Christine a little bit more about this. I think equity is also something else this generation talks a lot about. And we've learned that, you know, the we didn't grow up 
having salary transparency and um, all of this is really new and sometimes very frightening, honestly, as employers, I think, to have those conversations. But this generation is an advocate for equity. And um, that's also, I think, really positive, honestly. It's scary in certain settings and conversations, but I think it's a really good thing in the end. And it's really testing us and pushing us to our limits and uh, sort of exposing whenever there's inequity and and causing a ripple effect in a, in a way that hopefully will help things for generations to come. So I think the equity piece is, is a really positive thing of that generation. What we wanted to do is make sure that we were, one, being equitable, two, we were being competitive. Um, so we did an audit and we'll continue to do them at least twice a year to better understand what the market is paying um, at the you know present time, uh, looking at our competitors, looking at the industry, looking at the size of our business, looking at locations, and making sure that if there is um, any gaps that we need to close, we're we're closing those gaps. And in the future, every job here has salary bands attached to them, and we're working towards really positive conversations with people when they're saying, "Hey, I'm at X, and I want to be at Y." Okay, well, here's the band, and this is in line with what the market is paying. Here are our resources. Here's where we pulled this information. In order for you to get to that point, here's what you need to do. You know, in some cases, that might just be being at the top of the top level for that job. And in some cases, it might mean moving on to the next level and and getting a promotion, um, et cetera. Yeah, there are many upsides to, to pay transparency. Um, certainly in terms of, of a talent acquisition strategy, we know that candidates like to see that pay transparency in job adverts. But, you know, in, in terms of the organization, it builds trust with leadership. Um, and it's really fundamental if you want people to go the extra mile, because how decisions are made, how pay is determined, having that transparency enables employees to feel a sense of organizational justice. That's a feeling that decisions are made fairly and transparently within the organization. So what that means when we're in an organization that we believe does have positive organizational justice, it has a direct impact on our attitudes and behaviors. We feel more job satisfaction. We go the extra mile. We're more committed to the organization. We feel a sense of belonging. Our well-being um, is, is better. It really is um, such an interesting aspect of engagement organizational justice. So having this transparency around pay um, is, is one of the key tenets of that that are going to gonna help businesses like MKG, uh, you know, reap the benefits of these positive attitudes and behaviours. Of course, you know, giving the financial pressures today, the ongoing cost of living crisis, rising student debt, um, you know, rising house prices, the fact that many younger workers, you know, our Gen Zs have seen their parents be burnt significantly during the global financial crisis and the mass redundancies that came then. It's not a massive surprise that for our younger generations, that is an element of show me the money. Have you seen that film, Al? <laughs> As we find out from the previous week, no, I haven't. I've just seen that scene. But I, I promise you, we will sit down and we'll watch all the films. I've not seen Rocky. Um, I've, not actually, seen... I've not seen Rocky, actually. So we, we'll, we'll, we'll take care of that this <laughs> weekend. Okay, so back to MKG. I had a question around this because if everyone gets paid within the same bands, then what happens when you have a Don Draper style? I'm sorry for the cheesy analogy, but imagine you've got the absolute superstar who comes in and you're like, 
yeah, you know, they're, they're going to then they won't get out of bed for the amount of money that everyone else is getting paid because they believe they are better. And in some cases, they might be. So I had to ask Lauren, what? How do you deal with that? Does does the pay transparency? Does that risk not getting these kind of people? Pay equity has been overall, I would say, very positive for the team. Um, but there are some negatives too. On the employer side, it's challenging because sometimes we lose people because we can't, they want more than the band allows for. And to be equitable, we have to say, no, like this is the cap of the band. And either when we're hiring, we'll lose somebody amazing because we literally, they're asking for something that's way outside of our salary band and it would be unfair to our current employees Um, or we'll lose super performers. You know, 10 years ago, you had a super performer at an agency and you were able to give them bonuses or increases or, you know, get them to a place because you wanted to keep them and keep competitive. Um, you can't do that anymore. You have to, you, you sometimes lose amazing employees because uh, there is not a promotion available. So as an employer, it's, you know, I think it's, it feels better for us because we want to be equitable to our employees and we want to be transparent to our employees. We're incredibly transparent with our finances to our employees. Um, but there are some drawbacks for us too, which is that sometimes you miss out on or you lose great talent uh, in this scenario that you didn't before. I think Lauren's right. You know, there will be instances where they will miss out on talent, but that's going to be talent that probably wants something else, wants a different career path or wants a more corporate organization with that accelerated trajectory in terms of, of development and pay scales. But, you know, remember, we talked about a few episodes ago, the toxic superstar. We don't always want those Don Drapers in our organization. They can be disruptive. They can be, you know, counterproductive. We think they're going to elevate performance, but what the psychology shows us is it actually brings performance down as a team. So often I think whilst there may be times where, you know, Lauren and Christine might think, oh, that person would have been great. I would question whether they actually have the the unity in their culture that they have now, if they had brought people like that into the business and particularly on a different pay scale. Makes perfect sense. Um, we'll link to the episode about Toxic Superstars. Really, really interesting. I think we get Ryan Sherman on it, do we? We do. From Ryan Hogan. Sherman and the founders of Audax, which is an experiential team building. They, this is a match made in heaven. Yep. So we'll link to that in the show notes. So when it comes to attracting and retaining talent, we had to ask Christine and Lauren, how are they currently doing it? And from their experience, what are recruits looking for in a company in 2023? What everyone wants right now is to be thanked, to be encouraged, to learn every day and to feel like they're getting paid what they're worth. And that is how we're trying to lead. And everything else in the background, snacks in the office, you know, uh, happy hours, et cetera, are really important. And we're going to focus on them and concentrate on them. But we've taken a big step back and, you know, we, we want to focus dollars, money, attention there. What we think is, you know, part of the selling proposition of coming to work here is our culture um, and the work that we do and the you know, learning opportunity that to build a career or start a career often because we're we are talking to younger people. Um, but I think, you know, we again generationally, we come from a place we've worked at many places. We, you know, we've been around the block, so we know that there's 
salary is incredibly important. There's no denying that. But there's more to a happy career than salary. Um, and we, you know, try to create a place and create an agency that is a great place to work. I think we both agreed that uh, having in-office time and in-office experience was key to building a company that we wanted to work at. Uh, we didn't want a hundred satellites floating around Zoom. Uh, we wanted the community and the friendships and the work relationships that we had grown up with and that made not only MKG a great place to work, but previous places that we had been at as well. <clears throat> so that was really important. Um, but we also knew that flexibility was really, really important to our employees. So um, we chose to do a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday in the office, which is not unique. And that seems to be the, the sort of standard thing in New York and LA and I think many other cities. Um, but what we also did was uh, try something that, to be honest, we're still experimenting with uh, called core collaboration hours. So our team is, for the most part, split between New York and LA. There's a three-hour time difference between those two offices. And it's always been problematic because when you're collaborating cross-coast, uh, you know, there's mornings where LA people are expected to be on the phone at 6 a.m. And there's evenings where New York people are, find themselves on a client call at 9 p.m., 10 p.m. Um, so what we wanted to do was kind of sandwich or uh, smush our day um, into a more overlapping and reasonable chunk of time where people were expected to actually collaborate. So core collaboration hours are different in New York and LA in, intentionally so that they overlap more. So in New York, we're 11 to 5, and in LA, we're 9 to 3. And we set those hours as saying, these are the hours where you can set meetings, have brainstorms, um, do calls, because those are the times when like it is okay to lean on and collaborate with your cohorts. Outside of those hours, you do you. Get your job done. We expect you to get the job done. But if you're a morning person um, and you like to wake up at 6 a.m., work out, then be at the office by 8.30, do that. If you are not a morning person, you're 25 and you were out late the night before and 11 a.m. sounds like a better time for you to just clock in, do that. It works better for people who have kids. I had two young kids during COVID and my whole schedule is totally different than it was when I was 26, 27. Um, so we tried to create a schedule and a work expectation that was flexible for lots of different people at lots of different life stages. So one idea that Chris and Lauren had was to allow their employees to work from anywhere in the world. And then on top of that, we added some other benefits in. So we have something called work from wherever, uh, where depending on tenure, um, every employee is allowed a certain amount of weeks of the year where they can work from wherever. So if you want to take a month and go to Bali, as long as you're you're able to keep working, you can work from there. Um, if you want to get a house share in the Jersey Shore um, for a month in the summer and work from there, you can do that. So we tried to add that flexibility. Um, and then we also, on Fridays, added something um, where it's essentially no meetings 
are supposed to be set on Fridays. So it's called Focus Friday. And it's just time that's set for you to like catch up on your week or do the the work that requires real focus for you. I mean, that is pretty cool. You can like we, we work from anywhere in the world, but then we work for ourselves. I can't think of many jobs where or companies where you could just go in and say, okay, right, I'm off to Bali for a month. Mind you, don't go to Bali. Go to Lombok. Bali is horrible. <laughs> Sorry, Bali. Top Balinese. Tip. But um, Bali is not a great place to go, but Lombok is great. Top tip there. Um, but um, anyway, where was I before I ranted about Bali? You're not sure of any organi- many organizations which would allow that? Would just allow you to go, right, I'm off. I'm off. And in fact, if um, if you go back and read the uh, the four-hour work week, the, he has an entire, I forget the guy's name. I always forget his name. I can't remember but um, he has an entire like way in which you can exit from the workplace and then go and live on a, on a tropical island. But don't need to do that anymore if you work for MKG. So these are all brilliant perks, but I wanted to ask Christy and the president, I wanted to say, are these actually translating into better engagement and better retention? When we give people flexibility, people tend to want to stay. Um it shows that we have trust in them. And I think that we're treating them like the adults we expect them to be. So it takes a little bit of layer of, of that out of things. Um, and as long as people are, which they are, respectful of client needs, their coworkers' needs, and are willing to sort of work around when they need to work around what those core collaboration hours are or if they're traveling... Clients seem to really find this to be very future forward. You know, they're excited about it. They think it's cool. They talk about it. Um, so it's it's actually a pretty marketable part of our business besides just being an employee perk. The I wouldn't say downside by any means because I don't think there's much downside. But the constant question is, you know, are we always employing a true workforce that is that understands that while we have these amazing perks and we have these amazing um, office, technically in office hours, the expectation is to get your job done and to get your job done well. So again, we put a lot of trust in our people. We have a lot of honest conversations, but that is sort of the one piece that Lauren, myself, and the full leadership team under us has to keep an eye on, and we expect them to keep an eye on. Uh, what we need to do is make sure that it's not being abused, because if it's being abused, there's no gain for us. I did a bit of research on MKG, as you'd imagine I would, and someone's told me that they'd never met an unpleasant person at MKG, which I thought was such a cool thing for, for someone to describe your team as. So I told Lauren and Christine that this is what I'd heard, and said to them, what do you think the secret is to building a happy team? For the record, there have been unpleasant people at MKG, but they didn't stay very long. Um, and I think that's the testament to our culture. Um, we've we've always had core values, and they've changed over the years. And but I think one major major tenant that's kind of like an unspoken piece of our culture is we are a culture of kindness. We. No asshole rule. That's yeah. the nice way of saying it. <laughs> That's our rule. We do. It's work is hard enough. You spend so much of your time, whether it's actually in the office or on your computer working and with your coworkers, that to work with jerks or to work with people who are unkind to one another is absolutely 
a deal breaker for both of us. Um, so it's an unspoken part of our hiring and recruiting process. Um, and, you know, we are, we are not looking to hire people that we want to be friends with. You know, we're constantly looking for additive culture ads, um, people that add new skill sets, new experiences, diversity of many kinds. Um, you know, we're trying to grow our business. We are looking for people who come from outside of our industry. There's lots of ways we want to add to our existing business and our culture, but you have to be kind. You have to be respectful and kind and empathetic and pleasant to work with. I think that's the other unspoken thing that's sort of the in-between with our people being kind and why our flexibility works. If you don't care about the work we're doing, about you know meeting expectations and deliverables for your coworker, if you're not adding to what we're doing, if you're detracting from it, um, Lauren and I tend to have those conversations pretty quickly. We want not only people to be kind, but we want them to have fun here and be as committed as they should be to a job. You know, this isn't life, but it's an important piece of life. Um, so I would add, you know, they need to care. And they do, which is great. <laughs> it really does sound like an adult to adult relationship. And that's something that we've championed for a long time. And trust is really fundamental. And I won't go into this again. But if you don't trust your employees, why did you hire them in the first place? You know? And I think another thing is that being nice is really underestimated. I've had clients say to me, you know, oh, I think they might be okay at management, but I think they're just a bit too nice. And I think that's a, I think it's an abused word. And I think it's a, it's, it's totally underestimated how being nice is important. You know, as a leader, transformational leadership, the main pillar of, of that, which is still the dominant theory of, of leadership today, is being likable and nice people are likable. And when it comes to civility in the workplace, it's not a case of, of working with your best mates and having really, really, you know, close personal relationships. It's being civil. It's being respectful of each other. And we know that those behaviors, those civil behaviors, directly impact employee job satisfaction, well-being, organizational commitment, the quality of products and services that come out of the organization, employee retention, among loads of other things. So I think being nice, being civil, is probably one of the easiest things that you could try and do within your business that will have the most impact. So one of MKG's core values is being diverse and they're certainly changing the status quo by having an all-women leadership team. But how do they achieve this, particularly in an industry that often doesn't have many people from underrepresented groups within it? So we asked them, how do you do this? How do you make a diverse culture? And is there a danger here of positive discrimination? We'll hear from Christine first and then Lauren. I am quickly interrupting this phenomenal podcast to recommend another phenomenal podcast, Nudge. We love Nudge, hosted by Phil Agnew, a true gent. It is, of course, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. But that is not the only reason we're recommending it, is it, Al? No, it's not. No, we've recommended it to lots of people. In fact, if you look at any of our YouTube comments, it won't take you long, there's about 20 of them, <laughs> then you'll see that we recommend Phil uh, to anyone who likes our pod. Well, on Nudge, you're going to learn simple evidence-backed tips. It's going to help you kick bad habits, get a raise, and grow a business. 
Oh, and it's the UK's fastest growing business podcast. For now. For now, Phil, we're coming for you, buddy. <laughs> if you loved hearing Rory Sutherland from Ogilvy on our show back in episode 83, then Phil's latest episode has Rory on again talking about McDonald's, smoking, and why the pension system is broken. I suppose we should say that actually Rory's been on a couple of times on to nudge. It's not that uh, Phil's seen what we've done and gone, I'll have Rory. So I think it's important. Yeah, for no, us to we say copied. That. We copied Phil. Anyway, listen to Nudge wherever you get your podcasts. One of the things that we did, uh, I would say in maybe early 2021, is take a look at our recruiting practices. And I would say that has been a unspoken and spoken focus of Lauren and mine since that day is let's add, let's bring additive talent here and additive talent in all different ways, um, in background, you know, in race and um, sexuality and actual skill set. You know, there's so many different things. And uh, we tried to really focus on, okay, if we're going to be representative of the world through the work we do, this organization needs to be representative of that too. Um, We took a look at all of our job postings and went through them to make sure that there were you know, they were not biased in any way. One thing we're actually starting to do now, we haven't done it yet, is behavioral style interviewing for all of our people to make sure that there's no biases in um, how we're conducting our recruitment conversations. Um, And then we really took a look at the places we were going to for talent, job boards, et cetera, and made sure that they were casting a wider net um, to allow us to really attract that that talent. So it's really about doing the right things and taking the right steps. And a really amazing workforce will pleasantly just be on your website one day. (laughs) This is not an uh, this was not a unique problem that we had. This is like an industry wide problem. Uh, There was especially with the black community, there's just not a lot of black representation within advertising and marketing, and especially on the creative side. Um, so working with BLAC in particular has been amazing, not only because it's helped form a new pipeline for us, uh, where we have committed and are one of their partners, we're about to do our second year of a BLAC internship class, um, with the hope and intention of, you know, hiring full time from that internship group. Uh, but it also is, you know, we're, trying to mentor and foster talent for the future of the industry as well, um, which there's been a lot of amazing programs that have popped up since 2020 uh, in similar ways, trying to get more diverse creative voices into the advertising community. For us, for many years, a lot of the talent looked exactly the same. It was a lot of like young white females and it was very easy for us to hire them because they had the right resume But we had to say, we have to stop just looking at like the right resume. We have to look at potential. We have to look at other kind of experience. And um, for us, that wasn't just about diversity. It was about growing our business strategically. It wasn't about just uh, diversity of our talent, like by the numbers. It was, if we're going to grow, if we want to go from being an event experience agency to a creative agency... Uh, we need people who come from other aspects of advertising and marketing. So it was kind of a lot of things that worked out really well in our favor and have uh, contributed to us really being a stronger agency in a myriad of ways. 
I think this ties in so much out with what we were talking about last week in our EDI 101 for Leaders episode with the incredible Sonia Thompson. She talked about this a lot and it really comes to diversifying your candidate pool and what what she say, fish where the fish are, which is a really simple way of putting it. We gave lots of examples of how you can do that, the various ways that you can diversify your talent pool without resorting to positive discrimination. So go back to last week's episode and check that out. So at this point, you're probably in agreement with us that they're pretty incredible women. I wanted to know what they thought their superpower was. So here's Christine. I grew up at the Jersey Shore and my dad owned a, a slice shop, like a pizzeria. You come in, you get a slice. My mom worked. I'm one of three kids. I am very much a fixer, middle child. Welcome to my fixer life in this role today. Um, and honestly, I, it's really interesting because I never would have taken my background and looked at it and said, you're going to be running a marketing agency one day. But it makes a lot of sense. And I say that because this role has me not just trying to fix, but trying to make things better, bring things together, bring people together. My parents didn't go to college. You know, it's like a very deeply emotional subject for me because my parents were beyond proud. But what I would sort of say to anyone, and if there's like, and I'm not sure if anyone young listens to this, is if I could do one thing earlier in my life, it's recognize what I was good at and lean into it. I sort of fell into this place and then one day said, oh, I, I get why I'm here and I get how my upbringing and my big Italian full of love childhood got me here. But it took me a really long time to realize that it wasn't luck. You know, it wasn't luck. It's life experience. It's understanding how to navigate people. Um, and now when I'm coaching someone that's out of college or a younger person here, I say to them, recognize what what you're good at, recognize what makes you you and lean into it. And then also be fully aware of what your strengths are not and then lean into someone else for those. But don't hide it. You know, it's who you are, you are, and it's a great thing. And I, um, I wish everyone recognizes that. I wish myself would recognize it more in every moment. But hey, you just got emotional. Emotional, Christine. <laughs> I'm like the fuck up of my family. <laughs> um, so my family all, you know, went to very prestigious uh, grad schools and, you know, Columbia Business School, Columbia Law School. And um, I sort of accidentally fell into this business. I'm I went to college and moved back to New York thinking I wanted to be a writer. I was always very good at writing. And so I think I knew immediately, I'll lean into what you're good at. I was a great writer. I'd always like been really easy for me. I went to, I want to say it was Condé Nast. It might not have been, but I had an interview with like a HR person at Condé Nast for an editorial assistant or not even assistant, editorial internship. And in the interview, she was like looking at my resume. She was like, I see here that you studied uh, religion and sociology in college. Were you going to go into the cloth? And I was like, whoa, bitch, I think I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> um, so I very quickly realized that 
I <laughs> needed, I was not like well suited for a big corporate place. So my next jump was to a marketing company and it just kind of like happened from there. Um, but I would say opposite of Christine, for me, my advice was, or what worked for me was not necessarily leaning into what I was good at, but leaning into what I actually enjoyed. There were there are things that I'm good at that I don't like doing, and I've built a career where I don't have to do a lot of them. Um, or ask Christine, I just procrastinate and don't do them. <laughs> um, but so for me, it was like, I, you know, I tried production, I tried accounts, there were aspects of those things that I was good at, there were aspects of those things that I was very bad at. Um, but I knew that what I actually enjoyed doing was creative and thinking and, um, you know, working with clients in that way, working with them to like, bounce creative ideas and come up with something cool and come up with something new. Um, so I just carved a path where I was like, this is what I like doing. So I'm going to figure out, I'm going to build a team. I'm going to hire really great, smart people um, to make me look good and teach me. And I just, th that was sort of my path. Some really great lessons though, I think from, from Christine and Lauren. And I, as I said, you know, it, it wasn't a, an overnight success. It wasn't a journey without its challenges and bumps in the road. Um, and I think that one makes it a more interesting story. Two makes them more authentic as leaders because, you know, they've demonstrated who they are in the good times and the bad times. Um, and I think there's some really practical things that we can, you know, leaders can also apply within their business. Yeah, I totally agree. So, I mean, as a psychologist, what, what do you think your main takeaways are? I think my... First takeaway would be that the creative industry could be a really interesting place for more case studies when it comes to generational differences because they do have this higher saturation of of Gen Z um, and they're you know at the forefront of managing these challenges and these differences and how we approach work and what work means to to our younger generations. I think it could be a really interesting breeding ground for research um, for psychologists to to really dig into that and see what's working, what's not, what impact that, that's having, both on the in individual, on the organisation. Um, yeah, I think I'd be really intrigued to see if there are any universities currently partnering with creative agencies to, to kind of kick off this type of work. Interesting. And I suppose by their very nature, they are innovative and creative. So we're going to see some, some interesting things coming out of there, I think. I was really impressed that there was pay transparency. I was really impressed that there was the hybrid working and also work from anywhere the same time, and I'm not taking anything away from MKG, but at the same time, this isn't rocket science. This is just this is just basic marketing. They just said to their workforce, what do you want? Workforce probably gave them a list of 20 things. They said, we can give you six of these. Happy with those? Yeah. Find out what people want and give it to them. This is really is as simple as that. So if you're overcomplicating workplace culture, stop trying to reinvent the wheel. Just find a work policy that's flexible enough that works for them, but also allows for collaboration, that kind of thing. It's not rocket science. It's really not. We've said that all along, haven't we? It's adult to adult conversations, adult to adult relationships, gaining the employee insights to try and give people what is going to be of value to them and what they need. Um, it's not that difficult, really. And I think the other thing that I would say that what I, from what I can gather, MKG are doing particularly well is having this intention behind it. I know we keep saying intention, but I think what that means is 
it's not a scattergun approach or what benefits can we throw out? Let's add grandternity uh, because that's a core trend, yet all of their employees are under 30, um, which it could be possible. It's unlikely, but it could be possible. Um, but I think that intention is really looking at everything that you have, all the benefits that you have, all the policies that you have, the ways of working, the behavior you expect. How do they fit into your values? Gathering everything up so you have this comprehensive view of of what you're doing. And I think that in itself um, is a great place to start just to to realize what you have, realize what you can enrich potentially based on your employee insights um, and how you can make sure that, that anything that you're doing, any decision you're making is intentional. It's feeding into the the culture of your organization. Love it. Love it. Anything else you took from that? I think the other interesting thing for me was um, leaders from bringing in leaders from other industries. I think that's always a really interesting thing to do because I think this kind of cross-pollination between industries often brings in very different perspectives. I've heard of that quite a lot before in the other aspect of my life, which is executive branding and coaching. But I think what's really cool about that is that leadership is a completely different skill set. Industry is context. Skill set is the leadership. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Do anything else to add or shall we say goodbye? I think I think I'm done. That was a lot, Al. <laughs> now you're taking the piss out of me, aren't you? <laughs> um, okay, so if you liked this, then I was a good chance you're gonna like everything else. There's about 42 other episodes, unfortunately, not um on YouTube, although we put them on YouTube, but they're just gonna be audio only. Um, that you can work your way through. If you've got an idea for an episode, come and find us on LinkedIn or go to the website, Truth Lies and Work. Nearly got that wrong. Truthliesandwork.com. And you'll find a way to suggest guests, to suggest ideas, and to get in touch with us. Also on that website will be all the show notes as well, because Spotify, iTunes don't really allow us to put too long a show note. And we like we like a show note here, don't we, Leah? We do enjoy a show note. And what have we got next week, Lee? A really exciting episode. So next week's episode, it's all about corporate lessons on workplace culture. And we have some big hitters in here. We have some senior leaders from, are you ready for the name drops? Go. Microsoft. Jaguar Land Rover, Ocado Group, and Lango Rock. Nice, nice. Yeah, yeah, it's nice, it's nice. And I also, I'll just mention that three of them um, are also women. Cool. So if you liked our new video podcast, maybe maybe subscribe. We'd love to, to have you on board and part of our Truth and Lies community. And I think as well, there's some kind of bell you can ring. We don't want to be those, those YouTubers who go, oh, please ring the bell and subscribe and all that. But I tell you what, if you'll notice we've got no subscribers because it's a brand new channel. So if you subscribe and you email us, and you'll find the email on the website, Truth Lies and Work, if you subscribe, then we'll give you something special. How about that?